We uh, live in a world that's very structured. It's a very ordered world that we find ourselves in. And our God created it that way, didn't he? He, he created it to function in, in predictable ways. And it, because of that, it makes the whole study of, of cause and effect possible. And, and so as a result, we can use a, a myriad of observational techniques to learn about, understand the, the relationship between causes and effects. And, and in fact, it, it's really quite frustrating when we see different effects and are unable to pinpoint the cause or the causes of those effects. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Something's happening. You see it happening, but you don't know why can't figure out the cause of it. Uh, let me tell you about the clothes dryer at our house currently. The effect lately is that it, for some reason, the dryer just simply shuts off in the middle of drying a load. It's really quite wonderful. Um, no beeps, no error codes, no warning that it's going to happen. It can happen at any point during the cycle. And I have absolutely no idea why. Google doesn't seem to have any idea why either. Uh, the dryer just turns off, and then if you push the power button, it'll come back on, and maybe we start the whole fiasco again. Maybe it works like it's supposed to. It's always a surprise. Oh, it's so wonderful. Um, now, if the effect were to be clearly caused by something that I can observe, I'm sure it's caused by something. I just don't know what it is. But then I'd be able to form a game plan, right, for connecting it, or for correcting it. I can see what it is. I can try to fix it. But when the cause remains a mystery, then changing the effect becomes quite difficult. And, and maybe, maybe you've had a situation like that, been stumped like that. Maybe it's been your clothes dryer that's done that. And if so, please come talk to me after the service and clue me in. But, but maybe, it's, maybe you've been stumped like that in other situations as well, whether it was with you know, electronics or or a relationship in your life, or, or I mean, it could be any area. The bottom line is we're, we are rightly accustomed to discerning the cause in order to change the effect. We're just, we're used to that. Well, in, in our psalm today that we're going to study, we're going to see the author, King David, make a clear connection between, between sin in his life and the effects that he was experiencing. Now, in the psalm immediately before Psalm 38, the one we'll look at today, in Psalm 37, David presented a helpful contrast between the, the, faith, uh, the faithful and the wicked. He draws this out. He, he wrote about the different outcomes that a person uh, could expect in life in Psalm 37. And, and, you know, you'd think that in light of such a helpful presentation, David would have taken his own advice and, and lived faithfully, that he, that he might experience blessing rather than discipline and judgment. But because David is a fallen human, just like we all are, that's not how the story goes. And we know specifics from David's life. We know the story in Second Samuel about his adultery with Bathsheba. We know about the murder of her husband Uriah. Uh, we can be quite confident that David sinned at other times in his life, even though those times might not be specifically recorded in the Bible. We don't know the specific background of Psalm 38, but it's clear that David has fallen into sin 
and he's suffering effects of that sin. And this psalm, Psalm 38, is him lamenting over his situation and, and seeking relief from it. It's lament and seeking relief both. So, so I'd encourage you to follow along with me. Psalm 38, David, he begins by taking an honest assessment of his current situation. So listen to what he says, uh, starting in verse 1. David writes and says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So you can categorize this psalm as one of lament, a psalm of lament. And the, the psalm that we'll look at next week is a psalm of lament as well. Uh, some of the lament psalms in the Bible are, are laments about a situation where, where it isn't quite clear what caused the effect that was being experienced. So some of David's psalms are, are laments regarding attack from his enemies, and we're just not told specifically why those enemies were attacking. But this psalm, however, is a lament psalm where we are told exactly why those things were happening, why David is in the situation that he's in. David himself understands that he's being rebuked and disciplined by God because of his sins. His iniquities are piled up, he says, above his own head. They've become a burden too heavy for him. So the indication that we're given is that, that the effects of David's sin are not just spiritual in nature, but physically painful. I mean, that, that's how he's talking in this, in this psalm. He says there's no soundness in his flesh. Uh, twice he says that. He says his wounds stink and fester. His sides are filled with burning. He's feeble and crushed. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, these are physical effects that David is talking about here. Now, now before we go any farther, we've we got to talk about the context in which David wrote this psalm. For the vast majority of world history, people have made direct links between the physical and spiritual realms when it comes to cause and effect. So for much of history, it, it, was, it was quite common to assume that a person's physical ailments were the result of an evil spirit. Uh, it, it was quite common to assume that a lack of rain meant a god was angry or that the presence of rain meant a god was pleased. Or if it was rain like yesterday, that maybe the God was angry because it was that much, right? But there were, there were links made there. Uh, it was common to assume that when something bad happened to a person, it was in response to their own evil deeds. That, that was the point of view held by Job's friends, if you remember from that story. Uh, you know, once the seven days were over, when they sat with Job in silence, they began talking and their words often accused Job of sin. 
I mean, after all, if something sinful in his life, that, that had to cause the suffering that Job was experiencing, according to their understanding of how the world worked. And so, so they made statements like this in the book of Job. Uh, those friends said, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. They said, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Right? In other words, Job, there has to be sin there, right? That's why you're having all this in your life. Uh, they said, you say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean. There's no iniquity in me. Behold, in this you are not right. So on the spectrum of connection between the physical and spiritual realms, if one extreme represented by Job's friends is that all physical problems have a spiritual root, then the other extreme would be that no physical problems have a spiritual root. Those can be the two extremes there. Our context today is much closer to this one, right? I mean, in our scientific, technological world, we seek the physical answers to any physical problem that we face. Aren't we trained to function that way? So illnesses aren't caused by evil spirits. They're caused by germs. They're caused by viruses, caused by cellular mutations. Um, A lack of rain isn't caused by an angry God, but atmospheric conditions. We can, can explain why it's is or isn't raining. So it can, be, it can be easy for us to read about David's account of his physical illness or, or Job's friend's understanding of that situation. It can be easy for us to look down on them for assuming it has something to do with their sins, right? We've, we maybe wouldn't say it this way, but, but we've elevated ourselves beyond that, right? We're more intellectual, we're more scientific, technological, we understand things more. We're trained to look for those physical causes, not the spiritual causes. But if we're going to be biblically consistent Christians, then we must look not only at our scientific understanding of events, but also consider the role that sin might play in the physical situations in our lives. So the Bible states throughout its pages that when it comes to physical illness or physical suffering or other difficult situations that we face, the answer regarding whether or not those are caused by sin in our lives is a firm and confident maybe. Maybe. All right? I mean, there are passages like John chapter 9 where a man had been born, uh, he was born blind. And the assumption was that either he or his parents had sinned. It's how you thought in that context. He's blind. He had that happen. Somebody sinned. It's either him or it's his parents. It had to be one of those. Well, Jesus heals him and responds and says, no, it's not either of those things. Sin was not the issue with that situation. He was not born blind due to sin in his life. And then there's other passages like James chapter 5 where we are told that the person praying for healing from sickness should confess their sins and pray with one another and then find healing. Uh, today's psalm is another in which there's a clear link made between sin and physical effects. So in other words, I, I, I think we run into trouble anytime we assume the cause of suffering in our life. 
If we assume it, man, we can get into trouble. If we assume that our suffering has everything to do with our sin, then we might be way off base. And if we assume that suffering has nothing to do with our sin, then we might be way off base. As I stated off the top this morning, our world is one in which physical causes lead to physical effects on a consistent basis. And we can observe that and we can learn and we can track those things. But our world is also one in which God actively works in ways that may not make physical sense, but in which his plans are supernaturally being carried out. So what David needed in his life, in the face of his physical suffering, was an honest assessment of the situation. Not, not to jump to a conclusion, not to assume anything, but to honestly assess himself. He was experiencing some kind of, some kind of great physical pain, and upon examining himself, he recognized that its source was indeed related to his sin. And that's why he said that there's, there's no soundness in his flesh because of God's indignation. There's no health in his bones because of his sin. I, I think that took a lot of humility on the part of David to make that statement. But it was only after that honest assessment that he was able to move forward in finding salvation. Not, not just from the physical issue, but from the spiritual issue issue as well, the sin that he's referencing here. Now, now again, I, I, I'm not saying this morning that the, the suffering in my life or in your life is definitely caused by sin in my life or in your life. I'm not saying that. To assume that is to perhaps be way off base. But suffering in our lives ought to prompt us toward an honest assessment of ourselves. Uh, it should prompt us to ask God to search our hearts, like David requests in Psalm 139 that he wrote. Search my heart, O God, right? Um, our, and our honest assessment might lead us to recognize that we live in a fallen world where things are just not yet made completely right. And because we live in this fallen world, suffering happens. That, that, that might be the assessment. And that was the case for the blind man in John chapter 9. Our honest assessment might lead us to recognize that we've fallen into sin in this fallen world. And our suffering is part of God's loving rebuke and discipline in order to guide us back to him. And that was the case for David in this psalm. That was the understanding that he came to. He recognized his sin, the role it was playing in his current situation. And so after he had done that honest assessment and, and identified sin in his life as the cause of his suffering, then he next wondered, well, who can help me? I'm in this state. I'm, I'm dealing with this phys physical pain. What can be done? Who can help? So look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. He says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends, companions, stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man, I do not hear. 
like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. So, so who can save David from his sin? He looks at his life, he says, I'm caught in sin. Who can save me? In verses 9 and 10, David looks at himself. And he realized he couldn't do it. <laughs> he couldn't save himself. And Paul echoes that reality in, in the letters that he wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians when he talks about being dead in our transgressions and sins. He's saying the same thing. We can't save ourselves. I mean, that's one of the clear themes running through the Bible. We cannot save ourselves from our sin. We can try, but we can't do it. Now, for some of us who are used to being able to diagnose a problem and fix it, that's a difficult truth, isn't it? Uh, for, for those of us who like to be independent and self-sufficient, that's a difficult truth to come to that place where we admit that I can't fix myself. I can't fix this sin problem in me. But it's a truth we have to come to grips with because if we don't, we'll never get to point number three today where we do find true and lasting salvation. We have to recognize that we cannot save ourselves from our sin. But it's not just that we can't save ourselves. Other people can't do that either. And David went on to talk about that in verse 11. He, he states that his friends, his companions, his family, they're all ignoring him or avoiding him. He could even turn to those who were closest to him in the midst of his sin. They could not provide what he truly needed. Now, we need people in our lives, right? We need people to hold us accountable and, and offer us encouragement and pray with us and pray for us and help sharpen us. We, we need people in our lives, but those people can't save us from our sins. And so if, if our honest assessment of ourselves brings us to a place where we recognize that sin is wreaking havoc in our lives, surrounding ourselves with the right people won't solve the problem. We can't lean on someone else to pull us out of that funk or teach us the correct methods or just distract us from the reality. Again, people are vital in our lives, but, but saving us from sin is not one of the things that they're vital for because it can't be done. And so David recognized that. He recognized he couldn't save himself. His friends, his family couldn't save him. Verse 12, I don't know if he's getting desperate, but he brings up his enemies. So maybe I could turn somewhere else. You know, as king, he was no stranger to people trying to take advantage of his weakness in order to defeat him. His physical suffering was seen as an open door by his enemies. They can lay their traps to snare him. You know, so not only could his friends and family not deliver him, but his enemies couldn't either, either and they, they probably wouldn't have even if they could. Right? They didn't feel sorry for him. They just, they wanted him dead, not, not just physically ill. But, but, I mean, it shows he has nowhere to turn. There's no human place for him to turn, at least. And it might seem like a pitiful place to be. David recognizes that he's caught in sin, and he can't do anything about it. His friends, his family, his enemy. I mean, I mean who can do anything about it? And, and maybe we've felt that way before. 
Maybe we've looked at ourselves, we've, we've seen the sin in our lives and feel like it's just hopeless. What, what can be done? What can we do? We can try to rescue ourselves, but, but it's only going to lead to frustration and depression and, and failure, really. But hear me this morning, there, there's more to this sermon. It's so great that there is. There's hope. There is hope. And, and that's the testimony of David as he concludes this psalm. There is hope. And that hope is only found in God. It's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what David goes on to say. Verse 15. So he's explored all his other options. And in verse 15 he says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer for I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boasts against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they're mighty. Many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste. To help me, O Lord, my salvation. That's the hope in all of it. The Lord Jesus is our only hope of salvation. I mean, He is the one who can set us free, break the bonds of sin. I mean, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, according to Jesus' own words. Now, I, I don't want to oversimplify situations because something like an addiction can, it's a powerful thing and it does have physical and physiological components to it. But true freedom will not be found apart from the saving work of Jesus. That is the proclamation of, of Psalm 38. If we've been caught by sin and we've tried everything to get free from it except for looking to Jesus for salvation, then our effects are, fu are futile. Our efforts are futile. There, there's, there's nothing that we can do that will bring us success there. What we have to do is what David did at the end of this psalm. We turn to the Lord, we confess to the Lord, and we trust in the Lord. That's where our hope has to lie. So in verse 15, David finally decided, I'm going to call out to the Lord. I'm going to wait for him to answer me. And, and really that ties into what we talked about last week in Psalm 116. Remember when, when we're in distress, when we're in anguish, we must call out to the Lord and ask him to deliver us. And, and we can have the confidence shown in Psalm 116 that when we call out to the Lord, he will incline his ear to hear us. Right? We, we don't have to get his attention through grand gestures or pious acts or heartfelt promises. We, we simply turn to him and we discover that he's been there all along waiting for us. And that's what David does here. He turns to the Lord for salvation. And, and along with turning to the Lord, he confesses his sin to him. And David finally got to that place in verse 18 where, where he didn't just recognize his sin and he didn't just lament his sin and the situation surrounding it. 
But he came before God and he confessed his sin. He stopped with the excuses, the denials, the justifications, whatever else, and he confessed it. Confessed his sin to God. Now, in our church tradition, uh, confession isn't something that is often held up highly. Um, I might nod my head and agree that, that it's important, but, but I personally have not really strived to make, that, make confession a central practice in my life. And I think that's, that's probably true for many evangelicals specifically, many Protestants in general as well. Um, and, I, and I think there's a, there's a couple reasons for this, um, and maybe you can relate to these. Uh, first, when I think about confession, I, I think about the Catholic Church. I just do. And, and when I think about the Catholic Church, I, I can quickly think about its shortcomings. And, and it's probably not fair, but, but, but that can be what I do. And, and the Catholic Church may not be perfect in the way they handle confession, but they do practice confession, and, and I think they're probably better off for it. And so I think that can maybe, maybe push me away from confession. And, and second, when I think about confession, it makes me uncomfortable. I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves, right? It makes me uncomfortable. It requires me to take ownership for my failures, admit that I've fallen short. I don't like to do that. I mean, maybe you do, and you can come teach me, but I, I, I don't like to do that. You know, uh, instead of viewing confession as some kind of extra credit for Christians, I, I think we need to start seeing it as the vital thing that it is. I mean, we already noted uh, in James chapter 5 that confession of sin is prescribed when praying for healing from sickness. And after we're done in the Psalms, we're going to go through the book of James, so I'll, I'll wait till we get there to really dive into that passage. But, but there's others as well that, that speak to this. Uh, Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Um, David himself speaks these powerful words just a few pages before in Psalm 32. And listen to what he says. He says uh, in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Isn't that a great place to be? Don't we want to be there? Well, how do we get there? Look at verse 3. Well, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So that, that doesn't lead there, right? Being silent, keeping, you know, not confessing sin, that doesn't lead to what he's describing in the first two verses. But then look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And David is quite clear there. There's two paths we can go. One, one path marked by confession, one that's marked by not confessing our sin, and one does not lead to the place of forgiveness. Part of finding salvation in the Lord is confessing our sin to him. It just is. And, and, and when appropriate, 
especially when we've sinned against someone else or our sin has affected someone else in some way, we need to confess to them as well. Confessing our sin doesn't make us a sinner. Our sin does that. Right? Confessing our sin doesn't bring God's judgment upon us. Our sin does that. Confessing our sin just opens the door for God's work of salvation to take place in our lives. That's what confession does. Man, I forget that so much. I think, well, if I confess my sin, then everybody's going to know I'm a sinner. Come on, you guys know I'm a sinner, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't have to, the, conf the confession's not needed for that to be reality. Confession of sin opens that door for God's salvation to come in. We need to turn to the Lord and confess to the Lord. And then David goes on and, and calls us to trust in the Lord for our salvation. Turning to him, confessing to him, and then trusting him. Verses 21 and 22, David's pleading with God, don't forsake me, don't be far from me, help me. The wonderful thing is that our God is a God who does those things. That is who he is and that is what he does. He does not forsake us. He is not far from us. He does help us and save us. I mean, we have good reason to trust that when we turn to God for salvation and confess our sin to him, that he will be our salvation. He will provide us the freedom from sin that we so deeply want and need. That is who he is. That's how he works. When we think about the psalm, it kind of ends, I think you can call it a cliffhanger. Right? We're, not, we're not told exactly what God did in David's life when he finally responded when he turned to God, confessed his sin, trusted in God, was David physically healed instantly of his sickness? We don't know. We're not told. Uh, did David struggle with that particular sin ever again? We don't know. Uh, did David's friends and family finally return to him? Uh, we don't know. We're just not told. What we can know is that God keeps his promises. And God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. So we can know that God did not forsake David. When David assessed himself, saw the sin, came to God, confessed his sin, God did not forsake him. I mean, God has promised to be near those who call on him. So we can know that he was not far from David. God has promised to deliver us from the power of darkness. And so we can know that he provided salvation to David. So we may not know all the specific details about that specific situation, but we can know generally how God responded to David. So if we assess that sin is causing problems and wreaking havoc in our lives, and if we turn to God for salvation, I can't tell you how every little specific detail is going to work out. But I can tell you that God will keep his promises. I can confidently tell you that. And a big promise that he makes to us is that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We know that will happen when we turn to him. 
How wonderful is that? What a wonderful God that promises us that. He's a God who loves us so much that he entered into this mess that David describes. And it's not just David's life, it's our life too. He entered into that mess in order to provide us the salvation that we need and desire. And, and so I want us to end this morning by seeing Jesus in Psalm 38. Now his name's not there, right? The name of Jesus is not in Psalm 38. And, and we have to be clear that Jesus was sinless, right? He was the perfect son of God who never committed any sin. And yet he still entered into sin's mess through his sacrifice on the cross. I mean, the physical pain, the suffering that David described, Jesus knew that upon the cross. The rejection of friends and family that David described, Jesus knew that on the cross. The desire of his enemies to see him destroyed, Jesus knew that on the cross. I mean, he entered into this whole mess. And the suffering brought about by sin, Jesus willingly took upon himself. He did it because of his love for David. Uh, he did it because of his love for you and me. That's what, uh, that's what prompted him to act in that way. And so salvation then for you and me is possible because of our loving, sacrificial Savior. If it weren't for that, you know, if we didn't ever couldn't get to verse 15 in Psalm 38, then, then we are hopeless. But that's not the reality. The reality is that we have a Savior that we can turn to. And so the question is, will we turn to him? In our sin, when we see what sin is doing within us, will we turn to him? Will we confess to him? Will we trust him to be our Savior? That's what this psalm begs us to ask of ourselves. Let's stand together and come before God. And come before the one who, who is our Savior, who looked at this whole mess of sin that we're in and said, I'm going to put myself in that so that I can save them from that. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful we're thankful for your love toward us. We recognize that without that, uh, we're lost. We're, we're lost in our sin. We can't save ourselves. No one else can save us. And we're thankful that we can turn to you. God, I pray for myself and for all of us here that that, that wouldn't just be a one-time come to Jesus kind of thing, but that that would be a daily hourly, moment-by-moment moment reality for us, that we turn to you. In every situation that we face, every time we fall short of what you call us to, that we would turn to you and, and call out to you to save us. And God, I'm confident that you will. I can stand up here with a clear conscience and proclaim that you will not leave a single person here 
in a hopeless situation when we turn to you. It's why we praise you. The songs that we've already sung this morning, it's why we can sing them. Songs that we're going to sing in a moment, it's why we can sing those. God, I pray that you would you would continually call us to yourself. Sin can blind us. It can it can take us to a place of, of shame, a place of denial, a place of confusion. So many places that that don't lead to you, God. But I pray that you would be powerfully drawing us to yourself. That while sin is pushing us away, that we would turn to you in your power and in your strength. We give you the praise this morning, Lord. We're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for your salvation in our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.